Welcome. Um, no, I realise I'm looking out. There's a lot of faces I don't know. So I'm John. Nice to meet you all. Um, it's a great pleasure and privilege to be with you today. Um, let's just open up in prayer. Um, Father, we thank you that you are here in our midst, Lord, and that you so richly bless us with your presence when we gather together in your name. Um, so, God, we just pray that as we open up your word, you would have a quiet word to say to each of us, Lord. Um, and I, I thank you so much that we have the ability to hear your voice, Lord, and, and to go out and, and use it, Lord. Um, so we commit this time to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, so tonight we're talking about the furnace. And I think as Christians in 21st century Australia, we can feel like we're in the furnace. Um, and we feel like we're in the furnace in a lot of ways. Um, as Christians, we, we head out into the world with a way of behaving, a way of thinking, a way of feeling, a way of framing things. And there's increasingly a, a, a sharp attention between us um, and the world in which we live. The way that we think about issues like love and sex and marriage and family, the way that we think about what it looks like to live a good life, the way that we think about the role that um, government and society play. All of those things are in a point now where there's increasing tension. There's never been a time in Australia where there's been as few people regularly attending church as there is now. There's never been a time where the public sentiment about church and Christianity is as negative as it is now. The church in Australia has been steadily declining since 1950 and that's a trend that maybe is starting to plateau out um, but definitely isn't convincingly reversing. Um, and so I thought we would look at an incredible example of a furnace, um, faith under tension, the story of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. But before we go there, I just want you guys to reflect on the times in your own life where you feel like there's that tension. And it might be at work, it might be in your place of study, it might be with friends or it might be with acquaintances. There are times where we feel like we can't say um, what it is we're doing on a Sunday or a Friday night. There's times where we might feel like we can't express um, how we think about something. Um, and it's about framing how we approach that situation that I think we can really learn from this story. So we'll set the scene first. We're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 3, but let's talk about what happens in Daniel chapter 1 and 2. So for those of you who don't know, Israel, the people of God, incredible. Um, it's, you've, been grown, you've been brought up, you feel like, I have a close relationship with God, I know his word, we're a unique people. And there's a long legacy and story of how God has continued to rescue your people and, and save you from invading countries. And all of a sudden, Babylon comes, they take everyone away. So Daniel 1 opens up with the story of how all of the best cream of the crop people were taken across to, to Babylon. And they were taken there to be educated and, and turned into Babylonians, stripped of their 
language, stripped of their names even, stripped of everything that made them feel like they were God's people. So we're introduced to um, four characters, Daniel and then, I can't even remember their original Hebrew names, but Daniel gets renamed as Belteshazzar and these three other unfortunate people, two of whom get cool names, Shadrach, Bishak, one of whom doesn't get a cool name, Abednego. Um, and, and that is their whole sense of identity eroded. They're completely removed from everything that makes them feel close to God. Here they are in the Babylonian court. They're told to train, they're told to study, they're told to eat food sacrificed to idols. They make a stand, they say, nah, we're going to eat vegetables, let's do an experiment. It all works out in their favour. The king's impressed with them. Great. We move on to chapter 2. The king Nebuchadnezzar has this crazy dream. No one knows what it means. Massive statue. Boulder comes, destroys it all. Statue made of gold, silver, bronze and copper. Um, and Daniel comes and interprets the dream. And it's about God bringing this new kingdom that will shatter all of the earthly kingdoms, including Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar's like, oh, cool. And then all of a sudden we get this massive disconnect. So chapter 2 ends, King Nebuchadnezzar says, hmm, Daniel really has the power to interpret dreams. Clearly his God is something special. But then there's this massive disconnect, and all of a sudden, in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar gets this idea. I'm going to make a 30-metre golden statue of myself. I'm going to gather everyone in Babylon and the Babylonian Empire, all of the rulers... Um, local rulers, you know, you've got your mayors, you've got your governors, you've got your uh, premiers, you've got all of your different r- rulers. Everyone's going to gather. We're going to have this huge orchestra filled with all these different instruments. We're going to play them. And everyone, as soon as they hear that music, needs to bow down to me. And what happens? Who can tell me? What does Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego do? They don't bow. And it's a big crowd, so King Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know. But some people go, they cause some mischief, they talk to Nebuchadnezzar, they say, these, these people, they're not bowing to you. And so we'll, we'll open up to Daniel chapter 3, verse 14, if anyone wants to bring it up with me. I'm, I was just lamenting that we don't have a projector anymore to look together, but that's okay. So Daniel chapter 3, verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar hears this testimony against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, And this is what he says. He says, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I've set up? Now when you, and here this is a threat. Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? And I'll just pause there. It's a threat of death. So here you are. Daniel chapter 2 ended with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego being appointed as rulers in Babylon. um, Because they were associated with Daniel. They were clearly, you know, super impressive young men. So they have a lot to lose. They're rulers. So they've come from being a defeated country to now being people with authority, people with probably wealth, um, people who are respected by the king. And Nebuchadnezzar leaves it open. He's not coming to throw them in the furnace. He says, listen, we can play the music, you can bow. Very good. We'll be good. Or if you don't, 
I'm going to throw you into the furnace and you'll be destroyed. And he even adds this little taunt, this little challenge, this little narcissistic edge of what God can save you from my hand. How would you respond? It's a pretty, it's a, I mean, think about the temptation you face in your own life. How guilty would you feel really of bowing in this situation? It's just a bow. It's a few seconds. You know, you could say, well, this is my king now. If God really didn't want me to bow, he wouldn't have let this king conquer us. He wouldn't have brought me here. Think of all the good I can do. If I bow, then I can continue to live an awesome life and do all this good. I live to fight another day. It's a big temptation. What temptations do you face? Temptations to your, to your character where there's a simple offer made, something simple you can do to be dishonest, to be, um, you know, whatever it is. A simple temptation. No one will know any better. And it's such a simple thing. I'm not harming anyone. How does Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego reply? We're going to spend most of our time here because I think that what they say is incredible and there's a lot to learn. And I think what they don't say is incredible and there's a lot to learn. So very simple, very simple few sentences. We're reading from verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Well, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty that we will not serve your gods or worship the images of gold you have set up. Wow. Three simple sentences. Number one, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Number two, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. And number three, but even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of God you have set up. What do we see in these three sentences? In the first sentence, we see they have nothing to prove. They have no intention to defend or attack. There's an accusation made that they weren't bowing and now you can bow. And there's an, you know, think about how you might respond. You might say, Nebuchadnezzar, you know us, we're good people. Daniel just interpreted the dream for you. You shouldn't be arrogant like this. This is wrong. They could quote the Bible at him. They could Bible bash him. They could preach to him. They don't do any of that. They say, we don't need to defend ourselves from this matter. Number two, they make an incredible statement of faith. God is able to deliver us. And they even say, and he will deliver us. Big statement of faith. There's this tremendous sense that we see the challenge here, we see the temptation, but we have absolute faith that God is present. He can save us, he can deliver us. And they they even say, he will deliver us. And immediately after that profound statement of faith, there's a statement of conviction where they say, Even if God doesn't save us, 
We're not going to do this. And that's a statement of conviction that stems from a sense of identity. And, and I think that's something that when we think about um, the temptations that we face, temptations that aren't just ideological temptations of say something you don't mean or say something you don't believe, but also sins placed before us, like um, be unfaithful in your, uh, in your marital relationship, be unfaithful in your work, be unfaithful in your relationship with your parents, where there's these simple temptations. Mm-hmm. The, the way that we resist is by a statement of identity of that's not who I am and a statement of I'm, not, I'm just not going to do that thing. That's not who I am. So that's what we see here. We see three simple, profound things in response to this. It is, can you guys say it with me? There's no defensive statement. I have nothing to defend. I have nothing to prove. I have a statement of faith. I believe in God. I believe that he's here and can do whatever he needs to do. And then there's a statement of conviction. So no defensive statement, statement of faith, statement of conviction. What don't they say? I'll open it up. What don't they say? What could they have said? Anyone? Come up with an excuse. Yeah, you can come up with an excuse. They can come up with an excuse. They can come up with an argument. They can come up with a way to try and convince Nebuchadnezzar. But that's not what they do. And I think that's something really, really profound about the challenges that we face um, when when we are tempted to compromise our morals or to compromise what we believe, where there can be a a really strong temptation to argue, to defend, um, to convince, to persuade. And a lot of that stems from, you know, how we think about what the Acts of the Apostles did, um, where we see, you know, Paul preaching and people getting persuaded. But I think that that's a misunderstanding. And that brings me to what I wanted to talk about next but we should talk about that. Ah, yeah. Uh, we'll talk about that later, actually. Don't worry about that. Um, so I think the model, I think the model for us, um, the, the model for us that we can see here is that the conversation at this point of tension is personal, not ideological. So, you know... Let's focus on the language. Um, let's focus on the language um, here. So um, when, they, when they make their statements, uh, when they make their statements, they say, we do not defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. They're personal statements. It's two people talking to each other as people and not as ideas. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're the day before an election. I don't want to make this too much political because I think it loses the power, like it loses, I think, the spiritual significance. But um, there's a lot of things that we're drawn into, like on the political side, um, or on the theological or philosophical side that can become arguments. But the model here is that 
ultimately the point of connection and the point of dialogue is personal and it's not ideological. Um, I think the other thing that we'll talk more about later is that behind this backdrop of what's actually said, God is working. And what do I mean by that? God has already sent Nebuchadnezzar a dream talking to him about how he needs to be humble before him and that his kingdom is going to be destroyed. And we'll see later. But God is already working in Nebuchadnezzar. And there's a temptation that we have when we're trying to connect with others, trying to share um, what we know of Jesus to others, to think that it's all up to us and it's based on what we say and what we can share. But God is already working and we're really meeting him at the point of where he's working. Um, and I think the last, last thing in terms of all the context of this is that ultimately it's Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego's character that's what frames the way that they're able to talk to Nebuchadnezzar. If Nebuchadnezzar didn't know anything about them or didn't, um, didn't uh, understand who they were, what they represented and they were just acting like this, he wouldn't have even had this conversation with him. They, the people would have told him they didn't bow. He would have just said, all right, off into the furnace. He wouldn't even bother talking to them. But because he knew their character, who they were, he was able to engage in this dialogue and then be transformed. Yeah. What's a furnace? A furnace is like a fireplace. So it's basically um, a super, super hot oven. And back then, they used furnaces to do a lot of different things and they had huge ones. So the picture here is a crazy hot thing that they stoke up and they can throw people in. And, you know, the, the historical context was that um, child, sacrifice, like child sacrifices and things were very common. Um, they were outlawed in Babylon, but, like, a lot of the peoples of that time still engaged in things like that. So the idea of burning people alive was a thing, which is very unpalatable. I think the fourth thing to focus on here is the tone. How do they talk to the king, your majesty? Um, it's a gentle tone. There's a tone of respect. It's a tone of gentle, quiet conviction that doesn't look down on Nebuchadnezzar, doesn't try and make him feel convicted or feel guilty or feel shame. It's a tone of respect where their own character shines through. So now let's see what happens. Um, so oh, I'll, t I'll just tell you what happens and then we can read what Nebuchadnezzar says later. So what happens after this? Um, Nebuchadnezzar hears those words and gets furious. He gets the people to start up the furnace. Um, there's a bit of hyperbole here where they heat it up so hot the people and they and he tell and they rush so hard to throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in that the people who throw them in get burnt um, from the outside of the furnace, just from how intense it is. And then Shadrach, oh, maybe we'll just read this part. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in the furnace. So the king's command was so urgent. Uh, so this is verse twenty-two. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Damn. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? 
They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. And straight away, how does Nebuchadnezzar reply? He says, he approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out, come here. They come out of the fire. Everyone sees that they're not harmed. They don't even smell like fire. And Nebuchadnezzar says, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. And then he goes on to say, I'll make a decree that everyone should respect their god, and if they don't, I'll kill them. So clearly he hasn't learned this full lesson. <laughs> and we'll see that in the coming chapters. So what's the outcome? Is that when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego engage with Nebuchadnezzar with that statement of faith and that statement of conviction with the right tone and with no, de- no defence, no attack, God was then able to move and Nebuchadnezzar's response to that was sheer amazement and in a way a recognition and a belief that God was active. Um, so what I think we see here is that the integrity with which we carry ourselves and the integrity with which we communicate um, and live out our Christian belief is what produces change in people around us. Um, So just some points of reflection. I think all of us feel daunted at the idea of being perceived as judgmental and hypocritical and that's something that we as Christians are increasingly thought of as And so my challenge to each of us is, number one, how can you live your life with more integrity and and show others that you practice what it is that you believe? Number two, how can we find the right tone in the way that we talk to others? Number three, what statements of faith um, and, and statements of Um, practical faith can we start to live out and to show to others and lastly um, what are your statements of conviction so I just now want to close up and then have a bit of discussion time um, just reflecting on those questions Um, so we'll pray and then we'll maybe split off into a few small groups maybe just have 15 minutes to talk things through and um, and then finish up so you guys bow your heads with me Um, Father, we just thank you that at the core we are your servants, Lord, and we're lucky to be the servants of the Most High God. Um, So we just pray now, Lord, that as we open up discussion with each other, um, you open open our eyes to what we can do better in living out our faith and in finding that tone and finding that way of articulating our faith and conviction to those around us. Um, We thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.